Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chott. My guest today is Raul Grijalva, a Democratic congressman from Arizona's 3rd Congressional District. Born in Tucson in 1948 to Mexican immigrants, Grijalva graduated from the University of Arizona and worked in education. He was elected to the House in 2003 and is known as one of its most liberal members. He is also the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Grijalva was the first congressman to support Bernie Sanders in last year's presidential campaign and has recently filed a lawsuit against President Trump's proposed border wall. He joins me now from Washington. So I wanted to ask you, there was a big story in The New York Times uh, this week about divides within the Democratic Party and uh, conflict between the left and the center of the party about how to move forward in the Trump era. As someone who's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, this is something you must have been thinking about a lot. How how concerned are you about these divides? The concern is is, is quite simply that that uh, that you know part of the frustration of uh, uh, progressives and those of us on the left has been that our agenda, whether our economic agenda, our environmental agenda, our uh, agenda in terms of investment, tax reform, etc., have always been kind of a, a agendas that were considered uh, problematic in terms of trying to win the center and trying to recapture the majority. Uh, and so that the concern that we would then uh, downgrade those issues in an effort to win a full majority uh, when it's not needed, when, when that, that that process of tapping down those issues is not needed or to muting those issues is not needed. Yeah, it's a concern. But I, I, I think that what has occurred, particularly since the uh, presidential primaries uh, and what has occurred after the first um, 90, 100 days of Trump, has been that that, that voice for, for those issues is, is, is coming from the base. And, and I think if you're going to be responsive to that base, those issues are, are going to have to be part and parcel as they are part and parcel of the platform for, of the Democratic Party. So, uh, I'm not too concerned that those issues are going to get tapped down to the point where they become muted. And uh, because those issues are the issues that are driving people to the party, providing the energy providing the activism and being at the root of the resistance. Right. I guess part of the fear is that, you know, you have people running in states like West Virginia or in the South, in Georgia. There's a race going on right now where people running on a sort of more progressive agenda is is difficult. And even if, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders is very popular nationally, that, you know, America, the way it's divided in terms of Senate seats and House seats, that you have to win in all these red districts to to take back control of Congress or in, in a bunch of red districts. And so therefore, kind of emphasizing the progressive agenda is therefore problematic. You don't buy that at all? No, I, I, especially on the economic front. No. Uh, we're we're sitting here with Trump because we didn't deal with that economic front and those issues during the presidential, uh, and he he used a fake populism that is now proving to have been a con uh, w- w- with the American people and, and with voters that wanted uh, not only change but wanted somebody fundamentally to respond to their their issues and 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 it was economics. So talking about jobs, talking about investment, talking about. Uh, Education and those issues are, you know, in any district that you're running for, uh, I think they're, they, they cross over those ideological lines quite easily. Uh, and uh, talking about health care quite easily, 
talking about uh, the environment and saving public lands and climate change quite easily. And so I don't think it's a question of those issues bringing down a candidate. It's not addressing them. And you can nuance it to whatever uh, situation you feel you need to nuance it as a candidate. But the fundamental issue is going to be the economy, what's it doing for regular folk and for poor folk, and opportunity and investment. Uh, those are the issues that are going to carry the day in this in 2018. And right. I think we're right. positioned really strong on those. Right. I, I just met, you know, you have someone like Joe Manchin, who's a senator from West Virginia, who ran and uh, has run on very conservative platforms for a Democrat. He offered support recently, I noticed, as I'm sure you did too, to President Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. And at one level, that seems outrageous uh, to probably to both of us. But at another level, he is running for the Senate in West Virginia. And so the, the sense of other people in the party is that those sort of compromises need to be made and people on the left need to be more understanding of those compromises that are required. Understanding uh, on on political terms, yes, but on the practical opportunity at legislating and at pushing back on on the Trump policies, if and when those majorities occur differently in in Congress, uh, no. Then the tolerance for uh, uh, going along and playing along with Trump then changes dramatically. But you know, I th- I think that the level of tolerance for a mansion in terms of the positions he's taken, uh, the pipeline, name it, uh, there's tolerance there uh, as as part of a rhetoric, but part of practical application, the votes that he takes or doesn't take, I think uh, uh, in, in, in the short term, tolerance. In the long term, uh, I, I, I don't I, I don't see people, and, and I speak for myself in this instance, being that tolerant down the road, no. What do you think of the campaign John Ossoff has run in Georgia? I think he's running a campaign where thematically he's keeping to those themes of uh, health care and accessibility. He's, and uh, he's keeping to the themes of holding Wall Street accountable. He's keeping to the themes of uh, economic opportunity extending, not being trickled down, but being a real investment and uh, and holding uh, Congress in this administration accountable. Um, he's keeping to those themes and uh, those themes are serving him well. And uh, and I think he has a opportunity and uh, to win. And uh, I'd be surprised if he doesn't. Let me ask you about the Trump administration and uh, Trump himself. My first question is, you've been in Congress for, for a while now. I'm sure you have dealings with people on both sides of the aisle. And I'm curious what sort of the feelings are in Congress. You don't need to reveal private conversations, obviously, but what the feelings are in Congress of people of both parties about this president and his administration and um, both their competence and um, their desire to do anything that's not sort of symbolic and uh, their, their, their interest in actually governing. Yeah. I think, uh, on both sides of the aisle, in private conversations with my Republican uh, colleagues and my Demo- and my Democratic colleagues, it is uh, the sense that this administration's unhinged, that it doesn't have the capacity or the credibility to to fully understand and govern, and so there's a there's trepidation on both sides. What's next, and what further damage can uh, the, can this administration do? Not only to to the institutions 
in our democracy, but more importantly, or just as importantly, uh, to the American people as a whole, because some of the damage that's being done just through administrative action are generational. It's going to take a while uh, for us to undo that damage, and and uh, I think that the, the word trepidation, a little bit of fear, and uh, just that it's unhinged, and since it has no capacity and it's lost its credibility, um, it, it's in a dangerous time. So tell me, though, I mean, about how do you understand when you're talking to a Republican who's maybe a friend or a longtime colleague, and if they say something like that this president perhaps is unhinged or that the way this administration is behaving is unhinged, how do you sort of understand their mindset and how they're deep down thinking about it? Because it it certainly seems like at the same time, Republicans in Congress are going to give Trump most or all of what he wants, or at least try to. How do you understand those people? Well, what I don't understand is that lockstep position. As as more as it continues to unravel this administration, as we can see, continue to see the behavior of this president and the corner that he is putting the the Republican Party as a whole, and then individual members in Congress, uh, the, the fact that it is there's no break from that and it's lockstep, uh, I, I have no real answer for. I really don't. I don't understand it. I want to turn to immigration. You are one of the people who filed a lawsuit against uh, the proposed route of the border wall. I was wondering, though, where where do you think the border wall stands in Congress in terms of the possibility that uh, something like a wall or approximating a wall is actually going to become a reality in the next four years? I, I, I think it's it's. Uh, I think the 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 rhetoric is hollow, and uh, uh, and I. I don't see this uh, both capital, both political and real and, and, and financial capital. I don't see the majorities in the Senate and the House want to expend that. Uh, and uh, it has become a hollow win for the president. Um, more and more difficulties, not only from suits on eminent domain, the tribe in my district saying on, on these 90 miles, you're not going to do it. We have to go to court. We'll do that. And the lawsuit that uh, we filed along with the Center for, for Biological Diversity is, is uh, again, talking about uh, uh, the fact that, one, it's not needed, and two, cost in terms of money, yes, but the overriding cost and what it's going to do not only to the area itself environmentally, but to uh, a, a variety of species that are part of that uh, Sonoran Desert. So we we feel that it's going to have a hard time. And those that's the beginning of the pushback on that wall. It hasn't really intensified. And I don't see too many Republicans wanting to put all their all their political and financial capital on that wall. Have you had dealings with um, Kelly, the Secretary of Homeland Security, about the way uh, ICE is behaving within immigrant communities? And when you or your colleagues have talked to him, what is the response you've gotten? Because we've read about, you know, an increased pace of deportation rates and so on. Well, uh, he came before the the caucus as a whole, the Democratic caucus, the Hispanic caucus, the Asian Pacific caucus have confronted him very directly uh, about uh, the deportation regimen that is part part and parcel, if not center, to the activities of ICE. And uh, we have gotten answers and re- some reassurances that what we 
were raising an issue was not really happening, that maybe it was a rogue situation, but not a pattern. And now with time, uh, you know, those of all those comments that uh, Kelly made have proven to be false, that it is a pattern and it is a a structured pattern uh, and it's just appearing over and over again. So in terms of his veracity with many of us, uh, it's not there. Well, okay. So let me ask you this because there've been sort of two theories of what's going on. One is that, there's been directives from above to increase deportation raids and really put the pedal to the metal on this policy. And the other is that ICE agents on the ground in various places are just being allowed more leeway. And the result of that is sort of increasing anti-immigrant uh, moves from, you know, resulting from that. Excuse me, I'm being I'm not being clear. Um, but yeah, no, I got it. Okay. I mean, so do you do you have some sense of what that is? It's very hard to and tell. I think what it's this one administ- in the same. Okay. But it's very hard to tell with this administration what's planned and what's... Yeah. It could be, you know, the directive from upstairs was in the executive order where uh, discretion was removed uh, for uh, humanitarian discretion was removed. Uh, judicial discretion was removed uh, from the process. So... If you're here undocumented and then you within the the category of the law, that's illegal and that's it. Uh, with the previous administration with Obama, discretion was uh, and uh, was given and prioritization of what and who uh, you're targeting uh, is is now one and the same. Everybody is a criminal and therefore everybody is suspect and a target for for detention and deportation. So, yeah, it came from above when uh, the parameters for uh, humanitarian uh, activity, uh, not being at uh, not not doing enforcement activity around churches, schools and hospitals, when all those began to get lifted and when everybody was categorized under the same definition of a criminal, uh, yeah. What percentage of sort of constituent services of your time now in your district is taken up with this issue? Back home in uh, the district offices, I would say 40 percent. And your district is what percent Hispanic approximately? Uh, about uh, of color, about 51 percent combined. L- let me ask you, I mean, when you when you take a step back and you look at how the party in Congress has been resisting Trump. Are there things that you think have been smarter than you were expecting? Are, you, are there mistakes that, I mean, I know you're in the minority in both houses, but are there, are there mistakes you've made? Are there things you think have gone better than you expected? How do you sort of appraise the first almost five months? Well, the, the, the first thing is the unity, that on, on the tough votes, if we lose one or two or three, uh, that's minimal. Uh, compared to other situations, so there's uh, in in pushing back and and voting against uh, uh, Trump initiatives that are le- in the legislative arena. Uh, I'm I'm very happy, and I think it's very gratifying for the public in general, and certainly for our base, to see our party standing together and being unified. That's number one. I think that has both surprised me and 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 it's been is very gratifying. Uh, the other. The other area in terms of, you know, the kind of uh, activity that is occurring all across this nation, the uh, almost organic development of groups and individuals across uh, this country that are involved in issues. I know I can speak for myself in my district. 
I'm working with groups and individuals that I have not seen participating in a campaign or in political activity in the past, but they are engaged and very much committed to it. And I think the smart thing that sometimes members have individually made a mistake of trying to grab the flag and running in front of them. I think this is in a time in our the that that's going on right now within we need to be partners we need to be allies and uh where we uh can be very effective whether in my case a lawsuit or or to profile and give voice to a particular issue we should and and but i think that us organically uh, some of these organizations that are developing not to take the flag and try to run so far ahead uh, that uh, we forget that there is a that there is a movement out there that we need to be we need to complement, not try to not try to direct. I hope we don't make the mistake of trying to direct this energy. Another issue along with immigration that you're centrally involved in is uh, public lands as a ranking member of the Nat- Natural Resources Committee. And I, I know that there are expected to be battles with the Trump administration over public lands. When you've been dealing with them and the Interior Secretary, have you had more luck or more sense of a willingness to cooperate than you have with DHS? Or do you feel like it's the same attitude from the administration? I think it's the same attitude. And, and as you see, you know, the waivers that have been granted to this administration and those that don't need waivers uh, that are peppered throughout EPA and Interior and agriculture, um, lobbyists, former employees of the extraction industry, of gas and oil, of uh, climate deniers. The, 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 you, the, there's a pretty clear pattern that what you're going to be up against. And, and the fundamental difference is that, one, the... I think this administration sees the public lands as as a, a resource to be mined, without a pun. I was going to say that's, what can we that's, take that's out a of pretty it? good pun. And uh, and uh, and we saw the the conservation and preservation and uh, adaptation as having to be equal, if not higher, in particular areas. And so the battle is going to be a, a, a over extraction, over the rolling back of. Even like the Antiquities Act, rolling back of clean air, clean water, areas that have served us well. The frustration, if I may, is that I hope my party makes those issues top burner issues in in a political agenda. You know, the people that support the public lands are in the 70s in all polls. Climate change in the high 70s um, that believe that we need to do something and it is that man is a major contributor to it. Uh, antiquities, high 70s, 80s, uh, issues that matter on, on those public lands. I think uh, in those swing districts you were talking about, uh, in those uh, districts that can be turned to blue, uh, I think this issue can be a very, very formidable uh, issue that we can all agree on. You mentioned a bunch of issues that poll very well that you would think Democrats would be able to exploit, which they haven't been able to exploit perhaps as well as they should. But one issue that polls well in a lot of different ways is immigration. But I think we've seen both in your state and nationally Trump's ability to use that issue despite some poll numbers to his advantage in certain ways. I was wondering if you could just talk about the way the immigration issue has played out in Arizona in the last few years. And, you know, the state obviously came to be seen as kind of the state for anti-immigrant sentiment. And just can you talk about how, watching this issue yeah. play out and seeing Trump rise and also where the issue stands today within Arizona? I, I think the 
the you know Arizona was the petri dish of uh, what anti-immigrant law can we put in place uh, and uh, beginning with 1070 but but I think what what occurred and I, it, there's a moment in history you can kind of pinpoint it it was when the dreamers uh, made their case public when you started to see those young faces when they took that risk that the conversation around immigration started to change and it started to change because suddenly there was a person attached to it. It wasn't uh, fundamental, you know. You couldn't, you couldn't just rhetorically say, "Oh, they're all criminals." All of a sudden, you had a whole different situation in front of you, and uh, and I think uh, I think the same is occurring right now. That you cannot categorically make the kind of uh, statements that uh, Trump has made without it ca- that catching up with you. And so now you see families. Now you see moms. Now you see citizen children in foster care because their parents have been deported. And, and so you begin to humanize it, for lack of a better word. And I think the, the what happened in Arizona, once it became humanized, uh, then that's when our pile got defeated. Once the extremists were isolated for what they were, and once you peel away all the layers of justification, you're left with a group that is fundamentally uh, racist, uh, supremacist, and they don't have the cachet, nor nor do they have the appeal uh, with, with with regular folk across Arizona, and I think uh, I believe across this country. Uh, uh, Trump did a good job of creating fear and blame on the immigrant community for everybody else's situation, and uh, I, I think that is catching up with him too. But I hopefully that humanization process is. Uh, uh, is is much more is more rapid than it was around the dreamers because we had you know it took a while to convince uh, president obama that that was the right executive order to do and once it's done it's it's an executive order that even trump is afraid to touch um look i we talked about this a little bit earlier in terms of people like joe manchin but the way the the way the electoral map is in the united states you have a fast growing hispanic population but a lot of them are in states which are probably not or may not be the swing states in the next election and i was wondering i mean do you feel that the democratic party has done a good job of talking to people who are not supremacists but are concerned about rising immigration no i don't think i because we've kind of, uh, it's not because of the, the, the conversation on immigration reform has been one-sided. Uh, it, we, we've been playing on the defensive on this issue. And I think once you talk to people in, in, a, in a very real way about what it means, uh, what benefits are derived from really reforming a broken law, accepting the fact that security has to be part and parcel of any reform and saying that loudly and clearly, but also talking about family unification, uh, that that I think you can have that conversation. You can have that in a logical, reasonable way. OK, uh, and we haven't done enough of that. It's and it's not because uh, it's either our way or the highway in terms of those of us that that are pro uh, pro reform in, in in this congress it's that you know when those issues hit people have ran away from them and i i really think we need to confront it but the message can't be uh shrill on one end and shrill on the other end it's got to be a, a rational discussion that deals uh deals with people's insecurities about immigration and more importantly uh their stereotypes about what it is and i i think you can have that conversation Congressman, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great great to have you on. Not a problem. Thank you. And that's our show for today. 
I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Rob Sims. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss out on more episodes of this show. Go to slate.com slash ask to subscribe. That's slate.com slash A-S-K. One final thing today. I encourage everyone to subscribe to another Slate podcast, which is called Trumpcast. The rotating hosts are Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamel Bowie, and they discuss all things Trump. They go deep on his latest tweets, his scandals. They have questions for him. They air their concerns. They have great guests who talk about different aspects of Trump's presidency. And I really encourage everyone to listen. You can download it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.